The events of January 6th, 2020 probably would not have happened the way they did if we had sought after and applied a Christian worldview. Welcome to the Pastor's Voice. I am Rule Sample, and I am passionate about Christian worldview. Believers in Jesus can stand up and respond to the challenges of the day. If only we would keep our eyes focused on the cross, our mind focused on the wisdom of God, and our hearts overflowing with His grace. Listen to the words of God from 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33. All things are permitted, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted, but not all things build people up. No one is to seek his own advantage, but rather that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for the sake of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions, for the sake of conscience. But if anyone says to you, This is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it, for the sake of that one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. Now, by conscience, I do not mean your own but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered about that for which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Do not offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many so that they may be saved. Amen. And from the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith. Question 1. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. On this Sunday edition of The Pastor's Voice, I am kicking off a series of meditations based around the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith. Most Presbyterians are at least somewhat familiar with this document, but admittedly, outside of the denomination, it is mostly unknown. However, in my opinion, the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith provides an incredibly clear roadmap as to how we are to develop and live by a Christian worldview. It is a series of 107 questions and answers designed to take communicants through the entirety of the Christian faith. It is primarily a teaching tool. Yet, even though they did not use the term worldview in 1647, it is entirely dedicated to instructing Christians how to live out a life of faith, a worldview. And as we will see as we go through these questions and answers each Sunday, we will see that God has equipped the church and her members to answer to, respond to, and live faithfully in any culture and any challenge. The first question of the Catechism asks simply, what is the purpose of humanity? Interesting. It does not ask what is the purpose of Christians, We think that we are dealing only with believers in Jesus, as this is a Christian document. But no, we are asked, what is the chief end, the chief person, the raison d'etre, the reason for being for humanity? Not just the church, 
not just those who read the Bible, who call themselves Christians, but what is the chief end of all humanity? The answer is incredibly simple. The purpose of humanity is to glorify God in all things and to live in enjoyment of him forever. There is no greater statement of Christian worldview than this, to live in all things and to do all things and to think all things for the glory of God and to seek his joy. The Westminster Divines, the authors of this catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Larger Confession of Faith, included Bible references for all the things that they did, including all these questions and answers. The principal one for this question comes from 1 Corinthians 10.31, which we read, which clearly states, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. That's right out of Scripture. It can't be any clearer than that. But the larger context of this passage is fascinating. Paul starts off this passage by talking about the freedom of the Christian within the laws of the Jews. All things are permissible. But yet, not all things are either beneficial nor edifying. We have freedom in Christ, but only so long as they build others and ourselves up. Now, we have to be careful that we don't take this concept of freedom in our context, but in Paul's context. Paul is not saying that all things are permissible. We are not to be a people of lawlessness. Paul in Romans 6 clearly states that we can either be chained to sin or chained to Christ. Paul's view of freedom is not one of licentiousness, which freedom is often seen to be. As Christians, our freedom is constrained and guided by Christ. But in this passage from Corinthians, Paul is talking about freedom within the routine matters of the day. In this case, going to dinner with friends who may or may not be Christians. Now, under the law of the Jews, this couldn't happen. Furthermore, one would have to always be very careful about asking about the origin of the food. It it can't be pork. It can't be certain seafood. And it certainly cannot be sacrificed to idols. For the Jews, these holiness codes were essential in establishing their separateness as the people of God. But for the Christian, these particular laws... Hold no sway. All things are God's, and as Peter's vision in Acts clears up, we are free to eat whatever we like. Meat sacrificed to idols is just meat, since neither the idol nor the God it represents has any meaning whatsoever, any real meaning whatsoever. So, says Paul, if, if you have a meal with a non-believer, have a meal, and don't inquire where the meat comes from. It doesn't matter. It's just meat. Unless, Paul's only caveat is that if that person or another person makes a point of telling you where the meat comes from, Paul then says, don't eat. But the reason is interesting. It has nothing to do with meat. It has nothing to do with your own holiness. It has everything to do with the people around you, how they view you, and ultimately how they view your beliefs and practices. That's what drives Paul to say, abstain. For the non-believer of the day, to eat meat sacrificed to idols is to closely identify with those gods. Thank you, 
insert name of false god here, for providing this meal. Thank you for being the, insert name of false god here again, who you are and what you do. I eat this meal in your name. We do the same thing today, as a matter of fact. When we pray and when we say grace before a meal, we are thanking God for providing this meal. We are thanking God for who he is and what he does. And we pray that that we may live a life of thankfulness always in his name. The non-believers, the people who worshipped idols, were doing the same thing. For Paul, that was a problem. On one hand, it was just meat. On the other hand, in the eyes of the unbelievers, you are literally ingesting everything that particular God stands for. That becomes a stumbling block, a non-uplifting moment for a Christian in relation to a non-believer. For the Christian to knowingly accept meat given to an idol is, in the eyes and conscience of the non-Christian, is to accept the idol and everything it stands for. That trips up the non-believer and sullies the reputation of the real God that we worship. Paul uses this daily challenge in the life of a Christian, interacting with non-believers, as the basis of an incredible worldview, which is at the heart of the first question of the Westminster Confession. In all things, the routine of eating and drinking, to the more important things, in all things, do them for the glory of God. Paul rounds out this thought by saying that part of this is to try in all things, to give no offense to others, to try to be as beneficial and uplifting to others as possible and where faith allows, to purposely offend, to hate, or divide brings no glory to God whatsoever. Paul's statement is incredibly encompassing and a little daunting. All things, eating, drinking, talking, interacting with others, interacting with your wife, interacting with your children, podcasting, writing, going to work, you name it. If it is in the realm of human capability, we are to do it for the glory of God. It is our chief purpose. It is what we are made for. What about non-Christians? I said at the beginning that this does not apply just to Christians. The chief end of man, the chief end of humanity, applies to non-Christians as well. They too, their chief end is to bring glory to God. They are made for it. Genesis points out that we are made in the image of God. We reflect and mirror his being and nature in all that we do. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see that within the Trinity of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is constant worship and praise and glory given and received. Jesus prayed to the Father and gave the Father his glory and his adoration and worship, even though Jesus is God as well. Because we are made in that image, we are hardwired to worship and glorify God. When we glorify God, we are living out our purpose perfectly. When we do not glorify God, we will glorify and worship something else, whether it be money or sex or relationships or cars or houses or status, but we do it to our detriment. 
because we are hardwired to worship and to give glory. But God's plan and design, his chief end for humanity, is for us to worship and glorify him in all things. The Catechism goes even farther. Not only are we to glorify God, but we are to enjoy him forever. I think a better reading of that is to be in joy with God for an eternity. This is not about going to a movie and walking out of it if we do not enjoy it are not entertained by what we see on the screen. It is not making sure that we are happy all the time and walking away from God when things get tough. To enjoy God, to be in joy with God, is to realize that one of the gifts of the Spirit is joy. That joy is the knowledge of God's love, of his saving grace, of his peace. Joy is not a feeling. Feelings change all the time. People often call joy happiness and happiness joy. That's not the same thing. Happiness is a feeling. Joy is a state of being. Jesus never promised happiness or wealth or comfort. In fact, he promised that the opposite might often be true. Millions of Christians throughout history have lived under constant oppression and terror. Many have had their lives ended in the most terrifying and horrendous ways. But as James writes in his book, we are to count it all joy. Nothing, Paul writes, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. That is joy. And that is the wonderful purpose that God has made for us. To glorify him and to enjoy him. To be in joy with him forever. So how are we to live that out? Quite simply, we are to do nothing, absolutely nothing, that we do not take the time to consider whether it brings glory to God. Absolutely, positively, nothing. Before we eat, do we pray and give thanks to God, glorify, giving him the glory for providing the means to eat The same for our safe places to stay. If we have nothing, do we give him the glory that he died a horrible death that we would never have to face the wrath of God? Before we post that snide remark on Twitter or embarrass another on Facebook or post a compromising photo on Instagram, do we ask if God will be glorified by this? Do we ask if our actions will uplift another person? The Bible clearly states that nothing is outside the realm of our faith. There is no sacred and secular life of the Christian, only belief. Therefore, everything that we do must reflect that faith and bring glory to the one who saved us. This Christian worldview even applies, must apply, to the political realm. About one year ago, several thousand political protesters gathered in Washington, D.C. to make their opinions heard about the results of an election that did not go their way. Now, there is nothing in Scripture that prohibits Christians from getting involved in politics. In fact, John Calvin said that the highest calling for a Christian is to go into politics and advance the kingdom of God through elected office. So the fact that Christians were at that rally is really not an issue. Christians in this country have just as much political right to protest an issue as non-Christians. And we know many Christians who went. But here are some important questions to ask about this or any other political rally that a believer in Jesus 
might attend. One, do they spend time and energy in prayer before deciding whether going would bring glory to God? I'm not talking about prayer for the event, not for good travels or for peace. Those are all good things and they should be prayed for. But did they pray whether their attendance would bring glory to God? Would it edify those around them? Two, while at the rally, did their actions and words reflect that majesty, power, and peace of Jesus? Did their thoughts stray to the love of our Savior? Did they stay focused on the mind of Christ? Or did they perhaps leave that all behind? Join in with the mob and be a witness to no one who saw them. Once there, and word of the violence broke out, did Christians immediately realize that there is no way those kind of actions could ever bring glory to God and leave? The Christians we know who went did exactly that. They were at the rally until they heard about the violence, and then they immediately left, not to protect themselves, but because their dedication to being a witness to Christ prohibited them from further participation in this rally. Now, there are times when Christians must resort to violence to bring glory to God. Those who fought against the evilness of people like the Nazis, those who gave their lives over slavery and freeing those under its yoke, or, who, or those who protected others from the harm of bullies and evil men, these are not what we are talking about. This was a political rally. Violence served no purpose other than to divide and create more hostility. And finally, if any Christian was involved in actually storming the Capitol, and I, I don't know if they did, did they stop to think for one moment that breaking the laws that they did and frightening the people in their way served no heavenly purpose and brought no divine glorification whatsoever? Did they stop to realize that if their faith was found out, that the only thing it would do would be to bring derision upon our Savior? Don't get me wrong. Christians had every right to be at that rally. But also don't mistake me either that Christians had no right, had no purpose to be involved in any kind of violence, any kind of law-breaking whatsoever. It reflected poorly upon them, and even more, it reflects poorly upon our Lord and our Savior. The bottom line is this. Had Christians placed their biblical Christian worldview and a desire to serve our Lord and Savior above all else, even above political affiliation, above their anger over an election, then the events of January 6th probably would have turned out much differently. And that goes for whatever we do as Christians in this country. If we are to focus on the mind of Christ, if we are to keep our eyes focused on the cross that is now empty, if we are to focus on the tomb that is now empty, and if we are to continue to worship and glorify God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and pray for his guidance that in all that we do, 
that we bring him glory, then the Christians in this country would have a more powerful effect than any political rally could possibly hope to have. A Christian worldview is not about changing nations. It's not even about bringing others to Christ, although those who are focused on Christian worldview will often find themselves changing hearts and minds for Jesus Christ one person at a time. A faithful Christian worldview, living out the chief end of man, is to bring glory to God in whatever we do and to live in his joy, his peace forever. Please join me on Tuesday when Terry Nightingale, pastor from Perth, Australia, joins me in our weekly podcast talking about the importance of his weekly four-minute devotional and how emerging ourselves in God's grace, even just for four minutes, can change your entire life. And also make sure to tune in next week when we go to question two of the Westminster Confession of Faith as we talk about how we find out how we are to live a Christian worldview. And if you are struggling with a Christian worldview, or if you have questions about living out your faith, please contact me here at The Pastor's Voice at podcasts at thepastorsvoice.net. You have been listening to The Pastor's Voice. My name is Rule Sample. Thank you for listening.